Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. This is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Like watch the stupid bowl. <laughs> yeah, we're not watching that. No. And we were just talking about how it's almost a tradition that we record while that's going on. Yeah, it is. I'm not a big fan of football anyway, but the NFL itself, I refuse to support right. that organization. And the same with the racism and the domestic violence, exactly. and the brain injury and all exactly. the white slave owners making all exactly. the money. Exactly. Everything is so, just so we're, yeah. we're on the same page. We are. And I would normally have some updates, but my uh, Amy Fitzgerald part two is kind of long. And so I'll save them for next week. But I will say Stephen Downs was convicted in Alaska of killing Sophie Serge. I will do an episode of it. If it's not my next episode, it'll be the one after. I'll do a whole episode. And Cressida Dick, the head of the whatever the police is, the Metropolitan Police in London, it's kind of a Sarah Everard update, has stepped down. You know, the guy, Cousins, who was convicted of killing Sarah Everard. Mm -hmm. There's been some other scandals, including another guy who they found out has like dozens of rapes and stuff. So I'll do an update on that next time. I just didn't have the time. I just want to make a general statement that I'm really fucking tired of crimes against women not getting the proper attention they deserve and just kind of people getting away with shit because it just... No one really gives a shit. Yep. People can argue that I'm wrong, but... You're not. It actually comes up during my thing tonight. Okay. Well, let me get going. Yeah, why don't we... As you know, this is part two. Murder. And if you didn't know that, then you have to go listen to the, our... Well, I was episode. just going to say... Ah! That I'm not going to be one of those people who say, you have to listen to part oh, one. Yeah. Please listen to part one. I mean, you can do whatever you want, because when I hear that, I'm like, I'll fucking do what I want to do, but... You would benefit from listening. What's that face? Yeah, that look, that's attractive. You would benefit. <laughs> Too bad that this isn't on YouTube. You would benefit from listening to part one if you haven't. And also, why wouldn't you? It's only. I'm assuming that somebody, if they're listening. If anyone's still listening. <laughs> okay, let, I'll get started. A reminder. Okay. That much of my information for this came from newspaper archives on newspapers.com. In particular, the Vermont newspapers, Rutland Herald, most of the stories reported by Diane Derby, and the Burlington Free Press, most of the stories reported by Michael Donahue. I also used information from the Boston Globe, both from newspapers.com and currently, and especially for this part, the awesome 2008 book, Erased, Missing Women, Murdered Wives by Marilee Strong. Well, it was written in, as I said, 2008. I got a used copy of it on Amazon. And while she does not discuss this case in particular, her reporting and research gives a much needed context. I've also used some court documents and other sources that I'll mention when needed. Now, a quick recap. Amy Fitzgerald was a 30-year-old decorated U.S. Army captain on leave to get a master's in the University of Vermont's two-year medical technology program. She'd served in Desert Storm for the Army, before that had served in the Navy, was a graduate of a challenging medical technology course at the University of South Florida. Greg Fitzgerald, her husband, was a high school dropout who'd earned a GED, had briefly been in the Navy, and worked sporadically as an auto mechanic and auto parts salesman. He'd attended some college classes, though it's not clear if he had a degree. The two, until September 1992, lived in San Antonio, Texas, where Amy was chief of 
immunochemistry at Brook Army Medical Center. When Amy went to Vermont, Greg stayed behind, ostensibly to pursue a master's in American history at the University of Texas, San Antonio. The weekend of May 15th and 16th, 1993, Amy was gonna fly down to San Antonio from Vermont to attend Greg's master program graduation. Then the two would return to Vermont, but that never happened. Amy's body was found face down in the dry bathtub of her apartment on May 11th, 1993. She'd been beaten and was strangled to death. It didn't take police long to figure out Greg was Amy's killer, a lot of it based on interviews with Greg's Texas friend, Ricky Rodriguez, who gave police the details of a five-day trip they took from Texas to Vermont. Rodriguez said he dropped Greg off at Amy's around 2 a.m. Saturday, May 8th, when Greg returned to the motel a few miles up Route 7, two hours later, he was nervous and shaky. Something went wrong, he told Rodriguez. Was it bad, Ricky asked? Yes, Greg said. I guess. Yeah, but I don't think by yes he meant she was dead. I think by yes it meant she actually fought back. It right. didn't go as easily as planned. Right. Yeah. Before police could gather the evidence to arrest Greg over the following 10 days, he took off. It turns out he was driving around very close to the U.S.-Canada border with his 22-year-old girlfriend from Texas, Lisa Morales. Some of the things we learned about Greg in Part 1 don't paint a very pretty picture. He had a criminal history in Massachusetts going back to 1976 when he would have been 18 or 19, including things like assault, intimidating a witness, which plays a part later, and more. He also had a record in Florida under the name of Stephen Fitzgerald. Each name had its own social security number. In January 1993, he reported Amy's beloved Jeep missing in Texas. He collected $4,000 in insurance money on it, then stripped it for parts, which he sold. A week before Amy was killed, police discovered the Jeep in a storage unit that Greg rented, one that Amy didn't know about, and impounded it. Greg found out about that on May 1st from the owner of the storage place. The next day, he left Texas for Vermont with Ricky Rodriguez. Greg had been seeing Lisa Morales, unbeknownst to Amy, for two years since Lisa was 20. She thought his name was Stephen. Greg rarely worked. Amy was the breadwinner, and their living expenses came from $2,000 she was able to draw monthly from the interest on a money market account. If she died, Greg was due to collect $106,000 from the military, as well as a $5,000 policy from J.C. Penney that he took out a month before her death. Something I didn't mention last week. Amy's brother, David Zeltzerman, told the Boston Globe after the warrant was issued for Greg's arrest on May 20th, 1993, quote, Amy was totally conned by him. She loved him and looked forward to going to Texas in just another week to help him move to Vermont. She thought he'd be teaching history and they'd start having kids. My poor sister had no idea what was going on. Ugh. David described Amy as a very loyal, trusting person who was also very gullible. When family or friends raised suspicions about Greg, quote, she didn't want to believe them, or maybe she thought she could turn him around, unquote. But this tells me, too, that if she did have suspicions or concerns, like about the Jeep or him seeing another woman, she wasn't necessarily going to tell her family about it since she'd already defended him to them. We know what that's yeah, like. that happens. So the timeline is Amy was killed in the wee hours of Saturday, May 8th, 1993. Her body was discovered the afternoon of Tuesday, May 11th. Police began to suspect Greg, so they said, when they talked to him in Vermont on Friday, May 14th. Amy's funeral was May 18th. 
On May 19th, Greg admitted to his cousin, Robert Seville, that he had killed Amy. He unsuccessfully asked Seville to help him fool police. He also called Lisa to come up from Texas. Late the night of May 20th, police in Vermont got a warrant for Greg's arrest on a charge of first-degree murder. For the next three weeks, Greg drove around the northeast border of the U.S. and Canada, I suspect, to see if he could find a way to cross, although nobody really says that. just seems like from the places he went, that's what he was doing. He landed back in Newton eventually, where his credit cards started pinging and friends told police they'd seen him around. Now for part two. On the afternoon of June 7th, 1993, a month after he killed Amy, Greg called his sister, Candy Delaney, who lived in the Boston area, and said, I'm going to make this short. I'm going to turn myself in. Wesley Delaney, Candy's husband, later said Greg was worried because he was on the FBI's Northeast Most Wanted list and was considered armed and dangerous, and he was worried about how police would react, like he'd get shot or something. He wanted to be accompanied by someone who could get him into the police station, quote, quietly, without a ruckus. Without a ruckus. Without a ruckus. Greg initially thought some old friends who were police officers would help out, but none of them, strangely, were available. They eventually came up with cousin David Seeley, a retired police officer. So around 8 p.m. on Monday, June 7th, 1993, accompanied by Seeley and Lisa Morales, Fitzgerald, wearing a baseball cap, a short sleeve shirt, and dungarees, turned himself in at the Newton Police Department. That same night, the 1986 Oldsmobile that was his latest rental was found in the parking lot of the Newton Star Market. You know, a lot of this stuff about like Greg going around stuff reminds me of that song Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Remember that? The one about driving around Boston. But anyway, police told the press after Greg turned himself in that he looked nervous and apprehensive or calm and subdued, depending (laughs) on on which newspaper story you read. His brother, Leo Fitzgerald, told the Boston Globe that Greg was scared and exhausted. Leo said that they knew the trial would, quote, be an uphill battle, unquote, but the family had feared for Greg's safety and the safety of others. At least the uncertainty is over, he said. Candy Delaney, Greg's sister, said, I'm just glad he's safe. He's done the right thing. Now we just have to wait for justice to take its course. (laughs) The Zeltzermans, Amy's family, said they were relieved. Her brother, Alan, saying, my parents haven't slept for a month over this. Greg told police he'd turn himself in because he was afraid he and Lisa would be killed in a police shootout, to which I say, yeah, right, white boy. Before he asked for a lawyer... He talked with a Massachusetts state trooper detective telling him no one else was involved. No one else was there. The girl is innocent. Her only crime is loving me. Oh, my God. Do what you want with me, but leave the girl alone. He also told the detective he'd contacted a lawyer to write a will before he and Amy attempted to kill themselves in the woods in Rhode Island by running a dryer hose into the car. You remember this supposedly didn't work because Amy turned on the AC because she was getting hot. 
like you're trying to kill you're trying to die i know and my guess is it never would have worked anyway because that's not how guys like greg roll it was just another manipulation the trooper asked greg if he wanted to contact that lawyer now greg said no that guy was only helping write his will which he wasn't going to do anymore he talked to the trooper a little bit more but then he did ask for a lawyer which ended the conversation it became an issue later because in massachusetts you can waive your right to a lawyer verbally in Vermont, you can't. You have to do it in writing. So Ooh, remember that. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, apparently a lot of other people, including ones in the legal profession, didn't either. A short hearing was held in Newton the next morning, June 8th, to determine if Greg wanted to waive extradition to Vermont. He did, meaning he'd willingly return to Vermont to face charges without having to go to court over it. Count that as the last time Greg didn't give the courts a hard time. The hearing was delayed nearly two hours as a scramble ensued to find him a lawyer. Several defense lawyers wouldn't represent him out of respect for Sam Zeltzerman, Amy's father, and a prominent criminal defense lawyer. Oh, that's right. He was a defense lawyer. Right, right. Finally, Wellesley lawyer Alan Ockstein agreed to be Fitzgerald's temporary counsel in Massachusetts. Judith Gaines of the Boston Globe described Fitzgerald as initially seeming to be in a fog and unable to answer the judge's questions. She said he often clutched his stomach as he sat in the hearing. Gaines reported that Fitzgerald was allowed a brief encounter with his sister, Candy Delaney. Delaney told Gaines about her emotional few minutes with her brother, whom she said seemed haggard, sad, and sick-looking. Quote, It was, let me touch you through the bars so I know you're okay. I touched his fingers and gave him a kiss. He said, take care of yourself. (laughs) I said I'd try to get to the trial in Vermont. That was it. Delaney also said that Lisa, Greg's girlfriend, told her Greg denied he killed Amy. As far as Lisa, the girlfriend goes, Candy said, Greg told her he was a suspect in the murder and she flew up here to be with him. She just loves him and believes in her heart that he's innocent. Lisa, by the way, was now staying with Candy Delaney and her husband because she didn't know anyone else in the area and didn't have anywhere to go and apparently didn't Okay, if my sister-in-law was suddenly killed and I found out that my brother had a girlfriend, I don't think I'd invite the girlfriend to stay with me. I don't know. You'll find out more about Candy as we go on. And by the way... I think it's significant that in the interviews with the Fitzgerald family that Gaines um, did for the Boston Globe, both before and after Greg turned himself in, they rarely talk about Amy or how they feel about her or her being dead. It's only in relation to Greg that Amy's name comes up. The Burlington Free Press reported that Amy's dad, Sam Zeltzerman, that day in the courthouse walked by Candy Delaney without acknowledging her. Later, Zeltzerman told Amy Graves, who was covering the hearing for the Burlington Free Press, that he was relieved Fitzgerald was in custody. Amy's brother, Dave Zeltzerman, said, this helps a little, not much. It doesn't bring Amy back. My sister was really a wonderful person. He said when they went to the memorial service in Vermont the week before, they were bowled over by the impact she'd had on people there, even though she'd only lived there for nine months. Shelburne, Vermont, Police Lieutenant Frank Thornton and Vermont State Trooper Sergeant Timothy Bombardier, a detective, made the 250-mile one-way trip to Massachusetts to bring Greg back to Vermont after the hearing. Thornton told the Burlington Free Press that Fitzgerald did not speak at all on the ride home. It turns out this was not entirely true. On the drive home, the cops pulled into what's described as a New Hampshire truck stop. 
As Fitzgerald and Bombardier waited for Thornton to return to the car, my guess is he had to use the men's room, they had a conversation. Greg Fitzgerald asked Sergeant Bombardier, where's Ricky? Bombardier responded, back in Texas. Why? Fitzgerald said, good. He had nothing to do with it. That one word Bombardier spoke, why, would later become a problem that would endure for years. But not yet. On June 9th, 1993, the day of Fitzgerald's arraignment in Vermont District Court in Burlington, Craig, represented by Jerry Schwartz, who headed the Public Defender's Office in Burlington, pleaded not guilty before Judge Linda Levitt. All the reporting said he pleaded innocent, but actually you plead not guilty. You don't. I don't know how much if this is true or not, but somebody once told me the reason they say innocent instead of not guilty is in case there's some kind of a typo or some. Well, in a headline, yes. Yeah. In fact, we had an incident like that at the paper I worked at in New Hampshire, because you can lose the not, especially back in the old hot lead days. But you don't say in the story he pleaded innocent. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. The plea came despite the fact he told his cousin he'd done it, something the police and prosecution didn't yet know about, that he implied to the Newton Mass police he'd done it by saying Lisa had nothing to do with it, and despite the fact he told Detective Bombardier that Ricky had had nothing to do with it, implying that there was something, you know, somebody would have something to do with. Now, frequently on podcasts, narrators express shock and surprise that someone pleaded not guilty despite previous statements that implied guilt. But we're not that kind of podcast. We know our listeners are smarter than that. That's right. You plead not guilty so you can roll the dice with a trial rather than sit there and be handed a sentence. Guys like Greg Fitzgerald, eraser killers, are not going to plead guilty most of the time. They think they're smarter than everyone else and they're going to outfox everyone. And also, I think they like going going through the trial. They do like going through the trial. Yes. They're the center of attention, and but a new 12-page affidavit was filed to support the charges against Fitzgerald. I wish to God I had a copy, but I don't. As I was doing the research for this, these little things kept popping up that a reporter would just throw into a story that was Uh. in this affidavit, and it's like, wow, that's significant. The day after the hearing, the newspapers reported new and interesting stuff, some from the affidavit and some from the hearing. This included... There was an audible reaction from police and others in the courtroom when defense attorney Jerry Schwartz described Lisa Morales as Fitzgerald's fiance. This was just a month after Amy had been killed. And as far as everyone knew, Craig was happily married to Amy and due to begin life with her in Vermont. Lisa, until May 20th, by the way, thought Craig's name was Steve. So they come a long way in a few weeks. Mm. Of course. Lisa, Lisa, come on. Of course, the fiancé thing was part of a legal strategy and something else, too. The legal strategy part was that Judge Linda Levitt had forbid Lisa from contacting Fitzgerald in jail since she was a material witness. According to Deputy State Attorney Bowerman, Greg had made incriminating comments to her about Amy's death. But Schwartz, Fitzgerald's lawyer, said it wasn't fair to keep the two apart. She's my client's fiancé, Judge. Uh, He's my client's fiancé, and he desires to have contact with her. It reminds me of my my fiancé. And based on conversations, I believe she desires to have contact with him. Diane Derby, the intrepid Rutland Herald reporter, noted that this all took place as Greg still wore his gold wedding band. 
Levitt, the judge, wasn't moved by Schwartz's plea for love and romance, agreeing with Bowerman that it would be improper for them to have in-person or phone contact since Lisa was a material witness. She said they could meet with a neutral third party present, but Schwartz scoffed at that idea, saying he wasn't going to let his client help the prosecution obtain evidence. So much for true love. I totally believe that Craig wanted contact with Lisa as much as he could get so he could continue to control her. He needed to keep her under his wing so that she wouldn't go rogue on him. Ideally, they'd marry before the trial so she couldn't be made to testify against him. But that had to be done with Department of Corrections approval, and there was a lot of bureaucratic red tape, and it's likely that would never happen. But even if that weren't going to happen, I think he knew how important it was to him to stay under Lisa's skin. And Lisa, by the way, wasn't charged with anything. The Burlington Free Press idiotically began referring to Lisa in stories as Fitzgerald's fiance, a practice that continued into the next year, which just shows how little deep thinking they did about the whole thing. I feel like that's a huge insult to Amy and her family, and also it's a meaningless label, especially in this context. Then again, they're the same paper who called the man who killed Beverly Smith, who we talked about last time, her lover in a headline after he was convicted of manslaughter. Also, side note, the free press spelled Ricky Rodriguez's last name wrong every single time it mentioned him, having to end in U-E-S instead of U-E-Z. I'm not sure why. I looked it up, and it's spelled in all court documents, and everything is U-E-Z. In another interesting Lisa development, according to the new 12-page affidavit, a couple months before Amy was killed, Lisa's mother, Consuela Acuna, found out that Greg was married. She told Lisa that if he didn't take care of his marital status, he was no longer welcome in their home. By early 1993, Greg, who Lisa's family knew as Stephen, was coming to the house almost every day. He'd been dating Lisa at teacher's aid since 1991 when she was 20. Lisa Mm. assured her mother in the spring of 1993 that Fitzgerald was working on getting a divorce. That would have been news to Amy. She'd confided to her friend Penny Turk in April that Greg wasn't returning her phone calls, and she wondered if he was seeing someone else, which supports a little of what I said earlier, that if she had doubts about Greg, her family wouldn't have necessarily known about him. Mm -hmm. In Texas, Greg rented a room from the Oberwetter family. Marie Oberwetter, a nurse, told Judith Gaines of the Boston Globe when Fitzgerald's arrest warrant was issued, as far as we knew, they had a good marriage. We thought he went to school during the day, and in the evenings, he usually told us he was going to the library. (laughs) When they heard about the murder and his criminal record, quote, it was like a different person they were talking about. We thought he was a friend, and he seemed very knowledgeable about history. He never seemed like a small-town punk. And Um, Boston is not a small town, but he definitely was a punk. That quote was in a Boston story that, like the ones this year, nearly 30 years later, make much of Fitzgerald's double life. I want to stress again, he didn't live a double life. He conned and manipulated people who were inclined to see what they wanted to see. He lived one life where he used and manipulated people. I I really don't like that double life Mm -hmm. thing because it makes it sound like there's two, like it's a Jekyll and Hyde. He's two people. He's one person and he's choosing to behave a certain way. I, I think it helps minimize this kind of behavior when you say it's a double life, you know? Yeah. But anyways, while Greg was at classes or at the library, as far as the Oberwetters knew, he was really at the local dive bar, the 106 Lounge, 
playing pool or over at Lisa's house. Also at the arraignment, it came out that he'd asked his pal, Ricky Rodriguez, twice to get rid of a friend's wife for him. Uh. For the first time for $5,000, and after Ricky declined for $10,000, which Ricky also declined. And he'd also speculated to uh, various friends and people, which these guys do a lot, how easy it would be to kill somebody and make them disappear and blah, 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 which if you're going to do it, you should just keep your pie. You know, it just shows how fucked up these people are, because if you're sitting at work with some loser in the break room and he starts talking like that that's not normal conversation no no. most unless you're like in a mystery you're talking to are thinking you're fucked up buddy yeah no shit greg chose his friends in some ways he chose them wisely because they were people who didn't say you're fucked up buddy but went along with him but on the other hand they also were not as committed to being duplicitous as he was and yeah yeah i know On May 4th, when Ricky and Greg were driving in a rented car from New Orleans to Vermont, they were stopped by a North Carolina highway patrolman for speeding. They didn't get a ticket, but the trooper told Vermont police that something seemed off about those guys, Mm -hmm. and he searched the car for drugs. More about that later. After Ricky and Fitzgerald left Vermont on the morning of Saturday, May 8th, Fitzgerald told Ricky he put his forearm on Amy's throat to strangle her to death. Something that was supported by medical evidence, but that hadn't been made public at the time Ricky told police. Fitzgerald also told Ricky to vacuum the rental car thoroughly because he feared he'd track kitty litter from Amy's into the car. Ricky didn't follow instructions, though. I wouldn't have. The kitty litter angle is something police hadn't released to the press and something we'll talk about more in a minute. Mm. But this is all stuff when Greg was arraigned that police have found out from Ricky. Aside from all the stuff we talked about last well, Ricky was time. pretty helpful. Yeah, Ricky couldn't shut his pie hole. At the arraignment, Fitzgerald's bail was set at $400,000. He didn't speak except to enter his not guilty plea, and he was led from the court in shackles. At the arraignment, prosecutor Lauren Bowerman said that Amy's death was premeditated, that it's something that took months of planning. She was right. In fact, Greg, thinking he was so smart, overplanned, and a lot of his way too elaborate plot is what came back to bite him. Eraser killer's goal is to make the person disappear or to stage the scene to look like someone else killed her, erasing his own complicity in the murder. Fitzgerald was in the someone else killed her category, obviously not the make her disappear category. And like many of this kind of killer, he overthought it. His initial plan was to make it look like she'd hit her head on the bathtub after slipping on cat litter on the bathroom floor. To do this, when he killed her, he spread the cat litter all over the bathroom floor. One minor problem with this is that Amy was military neat and wouldn't have had cat litter all over the floor. And if she did, she would have cleaned it up before slipping Mm -hmm. on it. Another problem is that cat litter, as we already mentioned, is easy to track around. But the even bigger issue is that Craig didn't, somehow, count on Amy, a trained military captain, fighting back. When she did, he ended up beating her before finally strangling her in the bedroom. But he was still committed to that cat litter in the bathroom narrative, so he dragged her body to the bathroom and put it in the bathtub. He left evidence that she was killed in the bedroom. Her body had drag evidence from being dragged by the legs to the bathroom. He still spread the litter on the floor of the bathroom before putting her naked body face down in a dry bathtub. And you don't get strangled and beaten up in drag marks from slipping on cat litter. He'd also planted the seeds the killer could have been an intruder. 
obviously making up the phony peeping Tom story that we talked about last time. The guy who claimed he was a meter reader at 930 at night. Something Amy had never told anyone and yet Greg came up with. He also told Boston Globe reporter Judith Gaines on May 13th, right after he arrived from San Antonio, that the lock to the patio door was broken, and that's how an intruder must have gotten in. So rather than set up a new lie to cover her murder after he beaten and strangled her, he made it multiple choice. While this didn't make sense, eraser killers often do things to confuse police and throw them off the track. But one thing they don't count on when they think they can outsmart everyone is that an intruder wouldn't bother to stage a scene that elaborately. He'd kill her and do whatever and then take off. So Greg was too smart for his own good. (laughs) The same thing happened when he set up an alibi. Before the murder, on May 7th, he flew from Hartford, Connecticut to Texas to establish himself as being in San Antonio on that day. Then he flew back to Hartford and he and Ricky went up to Vermont. On May 8th, after Amy was killed, He flew back to Texas and got there in time to use his credit card at a gas station at 5.30 p.m. He also made a call to a friend from his room in San Antonio at 6.30 p.m., something that showed up on his phone records. The problem was there was still a big enough gap on May 7th and May 8th for him to have killed Amy at around 4 a.m. May 8th, just like Ricky said he had. Ricky, it turns out, was also supposed to alibi Greg (laughs) in Texas saying that the two were together in texas at the time of the murder the police went down there to check the alibi that very quickly became greg's biggest mistake since he'd made ricky get some of the rental cars and all of the motel rooms on their trip north in his name proving ricky wasn't in texas so he outsmarted himself in his attempt to not tie himself to new england on those days but he wrecked his texas alibi because Ricky was supposed to be his alibi in Texas saying that he was with Greg, but yet Ricky's records showed (laughs) that Ricky was in Vermont and Connecticut. Greg further screwed up by, once he was told Amy was dead, driving from San Antonio to Newton instead of flying. This raised suspicions with the police who were told by Amy's friends and family that Greg frequently flew. Thinking about why he drove, it made sense to me that Amy had probably scratched or otherwise marked him, and he was hoping those wounds would have time to heal by, you know, stalling Mm. before he got there. It turns out the police thought the same thing. It came out at trial. So Ricky Rodriguez, Fitzgerald's traveling partner in crime, was 28, unemployed, and had what is described by the press, but not elaborated on, as a minor criminal record. He was the foundation of the case against Greg. Ricky put him at the scene and had key testimony that hadn't been released to the public. That ended up being a problem. A little more than a month after Fitzgerald was arrested, Ricky Rodriguez was stabbed to death by his girlfriend. As Diane Derby wrote in the Rutland Herald, the stab wounds that killed Rodriguez in his San Antonio home also have punctured the state's case. San Antonio police investigator Daniel Gonzalez, as well as police in Vermont, told the press that Rodriguez's death had nothing to do with the Fitzgerald case. He'd been stabbed with a butcher knife in what Gonzalez termed as a domestic dispute. Mm -hmm. He said, basically, they've been drinking, both of them. They got into an argument. Apparently, there was some history of problems between them. Allegations that he beat her in the past. Their argument turned physical, and she claimed she stabbed him to defend herself. 
San Antonio Police Sergeant Daniel Ramos told the Boston Globe Rodriguez's death, quote, appears to be a crime of passion between a girlfriend and a boyfriend. So here's Maureen again. Are you catching this language? It sounds like you are, Mm -hmm. Becky. It's the language of trivializing domestic abuse. Joanne Martinez and Ricky Rodriguez had lived together for about two years before she moved out after he beat her up one too many times. Ramos told the Globe that they lived separately for six or eight months, and then he said Joanne moved back in three weeks before she killed Ricky Rodriguez. Ramos said the pair had an altercation at a local bar, and Martinez went home. Rodriguez followed a couple hours later, quote, the door was locked, so he went to a window where they had a box fan and managed to enter by kicking in the, the screen and fan. He started abusing her again, grabbing her by the hair, beating her up. That's when she grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed him once in the chest. Maureen here again. That doesn't sound to me like a crime of passion between a girlfriend and boyfriend. That sounds like a woman desperately trying to defend herself mm-hmm. from a physically abusive, drunken, angry man who'd broken in. As we've learned, it's hard to get the actual story when police relay an account of a domestic murder. Ugh. Ramos said that when the police arrived at the apartment, Martinez was cradling Rodriguez in her arms and crying. Quote, she made a statement that she stabbed him. She was remorseful, unquote. Mm. Boston Globe surprisingly keeps referring to Rodriguez's death as a murder. And I am surprised. The Associated Press style book, The Bible for Journalists, has a lengthy entry on homicide and murder, part of which says, a homicide should not be described as a murder unless a person has been convicted of that charge. Exactly. Unquote. And this is a great case of why. Yes, it was a homicide. Rodriguez died at someone else's hand. But calling it a murder, even though that's apparently what Martinez was charged with, calls her guilty before she is tried. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously not a clear-cut murder. I couldn't find any information on newspapers.com or the internet about what happened to Joanne Martinez. In September 1993, Mike Donahue of the Burlington Free Press writes in passing that she denies she did it, which I take to mean she pleaded not guilty at her arraignment, which had been scheduled for August. It's not really the same as denying Mm. she did it. In the same article, he describes Rodriguez as being killed in a, quote, spat Martinez. <laughs> That's yeah. an understatement. I don't call breaking in through a window and physically attacking a woman to the point where her only defense is to grab a knife and kill the guy a spat, but that's just me. In 1994, during Fitzgerald's trial, it's mentioned in passing that she was convicted. I don't know what she was convicted of or any other details. Mm. Compare, though, what happened to Joanne Martinez after she killed Ricky Rodriguez, even the little we know, with Eldred Stafford, who had killed Beverly Smith. And we talked about in our last episode, who was let go. Then after years of pressure from Wanda Hines, Beverly Smith's sister, he was finally convicted of manslaughter and then sentenced to five to 12 years with all but 19 months suspended. And this is after a history of convictions for abusing her and not attending the domestic violence course he was supposed to attend as part of his probation on on that abuse conviction. Then he killed her and yet police (sighs) did nothing. Ditto for Leo Martin, who we also talked about in the last episode, when the death of his wife, Sherry Martin, was deemed a suicide. He, too, had a history of abusing her, violated a protection from abuse order on the night she died, and had threatened to court officers that he would kill her the minute he was off probation. (laughs) He got two to four years for the probation violation because her death was deemed a suicide. And Marilee Strong talks about and erased the number of murders of women by their partners that are 
made to look like suicides or considered suicides because they're just not investigated thoroughly enough. Yeah. You may be interested to know that while anywhere from 80 to 94% of domestic homicides, depending on which research you read, are men killing female partners or ex-partners, and a huge majority of those men have records of assault, including against their partners that they eventually kill, women who are convicted in the U.S. of killing a male partner get much harsher sentences, even though 80% of those women have been abused in the past by the man who they killed. So Ricky, the prosecution's star witness, was dead. Jerry Schwartz, representing Fitzgerald, responded with a terse no comment when asked by Diane Derby if he was going to ask that the case be dismissed. Chittenden County State's Attorney Scott Klein assured Derby that his office was still pursuing prosecution, but he'd say little else. Quote, it's hard for me to say anything on the record, except Mr. Rodriguez was a witness, and now he's apparently dead. Deputy State's Attorney Lauren Bowerman said Rodriguez's death threw a whole litany of ifs into the case. Since a defendant has the constitutional right to confront an accuser, what Rodriguez told police would likely not be admissible at Fitzgerald's trial. But Shelburne Police Lieutenant Frank Thornton told the Boston Globe they've been able to verify a lot of what Rodriguez had told them with other sources. But on the other hand, quote, there's a lot we weren't able to check with anyone else. That's helpful. Fitzgerald's lawyer did not ask for the case to be dismissed, and the prosecution got to work. Meanwhile, stuff continued to be weird. The week before Ricky Rodriguez was killed, Fitzgerald's defense began a pressure campaign with the court to let them search Amy's condo in Shelburne, which had been sealed since she was killed. Prosecutor Lauren Bowerman pleaded with the judge to not let defense go on what she called a fishing expedition. Judge Linda Levitt denied the request because it was too open-ended, not specifying what they wanted to search for. She said if they came back in two weeks with specifics, she'd consider it. Jerry Schwartz, Fitzgerald's lawyer, said it was difficult to specify since the defense hadn't been given the police reports. Levitt ordered the prosecution to turn those over right away by the end of the week. Schwartz Hmm. added, there's just boxes and boxes of financial records and letters. Those are the kinds of things that we think might hold some of the clues to a defense, unquote. Turns out that while the prosecution is required to turn over exculpatory as well as incriminating evidence to the defense, in 1993 in Vermont, the defense didn't have to turn over anything it found to the prosecution. So those boxes Hmm. could theoretically contain everything needed to put Fitzgerald in prison for life and the defense would want to see what was there before someone else stumbled onto it. Right now, nobody had access to the apartment, even Amy's parents. Hmm. It seemed like an obvious ploy by Fitzgerald to me to protect himself or find a way to discredit Amy, but no one covering the case brought this rule of law up. One reason the defense was probably antsy was that Amy's estate was also involved. Days after Greg turned himself in, Amy's estate filed suit against Greg in Vermont District Court seeking $1 million. It wasn't that they thought they were going to get $1 million from Greg. In fact, he filed a response saying that he had $3.25, a 1971 Volkswagen worth $300, and hadn't worked all year. No surprise there. Whose fault was that? He also listed $1,125 a month in expenses. And that would be in the time before he was arrested, obviously. And you got to wonder what he was spending that money on since he was renting a room in a house, according to him, driving a 22-year-old car. Anyway, the point of the suit was to freeze Amy and Greg's four bank accounts and two money market accounts so he couldn't access them. 
I'm sure it was mostly Amy's money in those. Mary Fitzpatrick, the lawyer who represented Amy's estate, said they thought Greg would try to access the accounts as well as Amy's life insurance unless they froze them. Of course he was going to. Right. A month after the suit was filed, at the July hearing where Greg's lawyers asked for access to the condo, Richard Kozlowski, an attorney for Amy's estate, told the press, echoing Bowerman, they really didn't pinpoint what they were looking for, only that they wanted to go in there and go fishing. He said Amy's parents were paying the $725 a month rent on the condo, and they wanted it closed, and they wanted to finally get Amy's stuff, but the delay from the defense meant that they'd have to pay another month's rent and wait for that. My guess is there would be very little there that would help Greg, only stuff that would hurt him. And again, they wanted to get their hands on that. I'm before sure. Amy's father, the criminal defense attorney, started looking through it. Exactly. On July 27th, Judge Linda Leva again denied the defense request to search Amy's condo. The specifics they came back with were that they thought they could find evidence that someone else had a motive to kill Amy or evidence that Greg didn't do it. And this would be wait for it, that they believe they'd find evidence that Amy was having an affair. As if. Uh-huh, yeah. Judge Levitt suggested a compromise in which police could go in and pick up any papers they thought were relevant and share them with the defense. That's obviously not what the defense wanted, though, and I, if I were on the defense, I'd be like, yeah, right, the police... Deputy State Attorney Cindy McGuire said all relevant papers had already been gathered and there was absolutely no evidence in the condo or anywhere else that Amy was having an affair. She and Bowerman at the previous hearing both said the defense had a chance to inspect the apartment, though in fairness to the defense, that didn't mean to search it. It just meant, you know, that they could see the crime scene. Defense attorney Lauren Kolich said at the July 27th hearing, the only papers police gathered were ones that would help the prosecution. And the defense believed, besides the ha-ha evidence of an affair, that ha-ha was mine, not hers. The last time they were in there, they saw scores of paper that might be relevant, including financial documents, receipts for Texas storage space, and personal letters, notes, and cards. Levitt ruled that the defense had seven days after getting any relevant papers from police to file another motion, or the apartment would go back to the landlord. The defense took the request to Superior Court, where a week later, Judge Matthew Katz gave them eight hours in the condo. That ended the newspaper articles about this, and nothing came up in the trial. Mm. So it was just another Greg Fitzgerald smokescreen, something coercive controllers and eraser killers are great at once the justice system catches up with them. They love playing the game and manipulating the system, stalling things and slowing them down. Yeah. By September 1993, the prosecution had dug up a jailhouse snitch to fill some of the gap left by Ricky Rodriguez's death. Yeah. By this point, Fitzgerald was represented by high-powered attorneys Peter Langrock and his son Fritz. Peter Langrock, who's still around and kicking butt at 83, founded his firm in 1960 after graduating from law school at the age of 22. In a lengthy, fawning article written at his firm's 50th anniversary in a local paper, he's described as the dean of Vermont's legal community. He's dapper. He's like Rumpel of the Bailey, only he lives on a farm and has an American accent and more stuff Mm. like that. He said in the article he's convinced the court system results in lots of wrongful convictions, and the more serious the crime, the higher the risk, which we obviously on this podcast agree with. Quote, I've had four clients convicted of first-degree murder, and I'm convinced two were innocent. This was in 2010. I assume he doesn't count Greg Fitzgerald among those two. (laughs) 
Anyway, David Gay, who shared jail space with Fitzgerald in the prison in St. Albans, Vermont, claimed to be on the receiving end of some incriminating statements from Fitzgerald. Mm. Gay was scheduled for an October 14th video deposition. The prosecution had started asking that depositions be videotaped rather than just doing written affidavits in case something happened to the witnesses before the trial, like with Ricky. One advantage to defense is that they can question the witness at the deposition, and the prosecution said this would satisfy the confronting the accuser thing in Mm. case something happened to the witness before the trial. Langrock, though, wasn't a big fan of the whole video deposition thing, and he said he wasn't sure of the legal precedent that it would really be able to be used in place if one of the witnesses died before the trial. In any case, David Gay was near the end of a maximum five-year sentence for burglary and escape and due to be sent to either California or Massachusetts once Vermont was done with him. He had convictions in both of those states but had fled before doing his time. The prosecutor, Cindy McGuire, said the evidence Gay would provide would be significant. McGuire said Gay would get a deal for his testimony, but the details weren't revealed, and it's hard to believe that Massachusetts or California would go for that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Big deal. Right. They're going to honor right. that. Right. Peter Langrock also wasn't on board with the jailhouse snitch in general, saying it was a classic case of inappropriate use of an inmate. He asked for time to review Gay's history, and he told Diane Derby of the Rutland Herald after the hearing that Fitzgerald told him that Gay had been trying to get him to say something incriminating. Quote, we were prepared for this type of fabrication, Langrock said. And as we know from the Innocence Project, jailhouse snitch testimony is one of the leading elements of wrongful convictions. And for more on that, listen to episode 110, the James Daly case. Yes. Diane Derby, meanwhile, dug up the fact that when Gay stood trial for the burglary he was serving time for, he claimed he was not competent to stand trial because of mental illness, but two psychiatrists testified that he was faking it. Hmm. That was the last we heard about David Gay and any more involvement in the Fitzgerald case. Meanwhile, Lisa Morales was staying at Candy Delaney's place in Massachusetts still. She hadn't returned to San Antonio, as I mentioned earlier. Despite the fact that she was supposed to have no contact with Greg, Delaney, Greg's sister, helped Lisa stay in touch. And Lisa called him at least 10 times between his June 1993 arraignment and January 1994. So in January 1994, Delaney, too, was forbidden from contacting her brother at prison. Greg, in turn, was mailing Lisa letters at Candy's house in Massachusetts addressed to Lisa Michelle Fitzgerald. Remember, her last name is not Fitzgerald, it's Morales. Talk about a total insult, as I said earlier, and slap in the face to Amy and her family. Aside from that, I'm sure using his last name when mailing Lisa was in part to fool his jailers. Remember, he had five or six siblings, and he did fool them, at least for a while. But it was also his way of keeping her under his thumb. Greg needed Lisa. And giving her his last name, I'm sure, felt good to a young woman. In March 1994, Lisa testified in a deposition that she couldn't remember much from the previous May and June when she was on the run with Fitzgerald, but she could swear in court that they were together in Texas on May 7th, 8th, and 9th. By February, with the trial due to start in April, this was 1994, the prosecution had lined up another witness who could carry more weight than jailhouse snitch David Gay, who, as I said, we never heard about again. 
Denise O'Brien hung out and played pool with Fitzgerald at the 106 Lounge in San Antonio. Police had talked to her before, and she said she didn't know anything. But in early 1994, prosecutor Cindy McGuire and two Vermont police detectives flew down to San Antonio and found O'Brien ready to talk. Denise knew Greg as Steve, even though they were very close friends, and they hung out together smoking dope, drinking, and playing pool at the 106 Lounge. In early 1993, she started helping Greg plan a murder. It was unfortunate for Greg that to carry out his elaborate plot, he needed help. And it's not like the 106 Lounge was the Algonquin Roundtable. (laughs) His idiotic decision to confide in other people is what would eventually do him in. Denise and Greg met several times in March and April 1993 as he worked out his plot to kill Amy, which they called the Houston Catering Party. Oh, Code word. Greg initially told Denise that he was making the plan for a friend who wanted to kill his wife, but it didn't take Denise long to realize Greg was talking about Amy. She was originally going to be his driver and unbeknownst to her fall guy. He offered her money to drive to Connecticut from San Antonio, pick him up at the Hartford airport, drive into Amy's where he would kill her, then bring him back to Hartford. Denise also didn't have a driver's license, but she got her learner's permit that April, so she'd be ready to do her part. Oh, how nice of I know. Greg told Denise he'd wear camouflage clothing, and he'd force Amy to drink alcohol so it would look like she'd been drunk, then use a baseball bat to hit her in the head and make it look like she'd drunkenly slipped and hit her head while getting ready to take a bath. Okay. Denise's bags were packed, but Greg left on May 2nd, earlier than they planned, and took Ricky instead. Remember, he just found out that police had found Amy's Jeep in his secret storage unit May 1st, the day before. I believe he had to put his plan into action as fast as he could before Amy found out about the Jeep. That's right. The next Denise heard from Greg was May 9th or 10th when he called her to tell her Amy was dead. Now, remember, Amy's body wasn't found until 2 p.m. on May 11th. And her family wasn't notified until a few hours after that. Uh But on the morning of May 11th, around 1030, Greg met Denise in a parking lot of the 106 Lounge. He had told her the day before that Amy was dead, but he met her in the parking lot that morning. He told her everything went okay, but it was harder than he thought it would be because Amy fought him to the end. O'Brien said later that she initially lied to police because Greg was her friend and she couldn't believe he'd really kill Amy. But obviously he had already (laughs) killed Amy. But I think she just didn't want to get in trouble. It makes sense. People lie to the police all the time. I'd probably fucking lie if I'd plotted with somebody to kill somebody. Anyway, Mm -hmm. she said it had weighed on her conscience and she couldn't stand it anymore, which is why she ended up telling the truth in early 1994. That could be true. Or maybe somebody gave her some legal advice and said, this trial is going to happen and you better come clean before somebody starts pointing the finger at you or something. Eh, Who knows? But as you'll find out, she's not the only one who kept what she knew to herself. Uh Much was made in press accounts of evidence being circumstantial. But as our smart smart listeners know, most evidence in a trial is, which is why the case goes to trial. There's no smoking gun in the defense figures. They can find a way around it. More on that later. Peter Langrock, Greg's lawyer, in a four-minute opening statement, told the jury that the case was long on accusations but short on facts, and police had rushed to judgment in targeting Greg, and there was nothing that could tie him to Amy's murder. Lauren Bowerman, the prosecutor, in an 18-minute opening statement, said Amy had plans for a bright future, but Greg had darker plans that Amy, her friends, and her family didn't know about. I won't go over all the stuff we've already talked about, but some of the things that came out at trial that we haven't already discussed. 
The Pontiac Grand Am that Greg and Ricky drove up from San Antonio in May 1993 was rented under the name Stephen Fitzgerald from an Alamo car rental place in San Antonio. It was found abandoned on May 21st, the day after Greg's arrest warrant was issued, in a Star Market parking lot in Waltham, Mass. Kitty litter was found on the floor. Uh If you remember from last episode, Craig, when he flew back to San Antonio after the murder, told Ricky to turn in the car before he flew back the next day. Apparently, Ricky instead abandoned it in a Waltham Star Market parking lot (laughs) and did not vacuum it out like Greg told him to. The cat litter in the car and the bathroom matched. They were tested by the FBI. Cat litter that matched was also found in Amy's car. The FBI guy went into a long scientific thing explaining how he matched the cat litter, blah, blah, blah. I would have liked to have known if Greg had a cat in San Antonio. My guess is that he didn't. Langrock, Greg's attorney, argued that service stations use cat litter to clean up gas spills. Langrock said it easily could have been tracked into the rental car that way because the North Carolina state trooper who stopped Greg for speeding on May 4th testified in what Diane Derby described as a thick Southern drawl, testified that Fitzgerald and Ricky seemed suspicious. And when he talked to them separately and their stories didn't match up, he searched the car for drugs. He didn't find any, but he had them drive it to a service station and put it up on a lift so he could find drugs, which which he didn't find. I think the only, they seemed suspicious. And the only thing that could occur to him was drugs Probably because Ricky was sleazy looking and Hispanic. I mean, they must have given him permission to put yeah. it up on the lift. Yeah, because they knew he wasn't going to find anything. Yeah, I know. But anyway, Lane Grock argued that this is where when the cat litter could have gotten into oh, the car I from see. the service yeah. station. Well, think about if you're Ricky and Greg, are you going to give the state trooper a hard time? No. You're on your way up to Vermont to kill. You don't want to get no, charged. That's you don't, true. You know, Elaine Fitzgerald, Greg's sister-in-law testified that he arrived driving at their house in Massachusetts in the early hours of May 13th after Amy was killed. He was disheveled from the long drive, but he was calm. He also had a cut on his hand and scratches. Greg told Elaine that he got them from falling on his mother's driveway. Hmm. He also brought up for the first time the fact that the lock on the patio door was broken And that's probably how someone got in to kill Amy. Uh He lamented, if I'd been there, she'd still be alive. Elaine Fitzgerald also testified that when Greg first learned of Amy's death, he said he was going to drive to Newton from San Antonio. She begged him to get on a plane, but he said, no, no, I have to drive. And she said his voice was a little shaky when he said Uh that. We learn more about Greg's failed master's degree. He was kicked out of the University of Texas at San Antonio at the end of the fall 1992 semester, his first semester in the one-year program, for academic reasons. My guess is he just wasn't showing up, and my guess is also he'd signed up to take the degree as an excuse to stay in Texas when Amy went to Vermont. Langrock tried to discredit Denise O'Brien, getting her to admit that she knew Greg was talking about Amy all along when they were planning the murder. And also went after her about initially lying to police about it, which I understand him doing that. But my feeling is anybody in her position, I'm not excusing her, but anybody in her position, except for apparently Ricky, is going to lie to police. It turned out that Denise O'Brien and Joanna Martinez, the woman who'd killed Ricky Rodriguez, they all knew each other from the 106 Lounge, had had sex one time. Langrock tried to make it sound like they had a relationship and her testimony about Fitzgerald was somehow a way to get lenience for Martinez, who'd apparently already been convicted, so it didn't make a lot of sense. 
The article in the Burlington Pre-Press says that Langrock was not successful in this line of uh. cross-examination. Langrock also implied that Fitzgerald and Ricky Rodriguez had driven to New England before Amy's murder as part of a drug courier network. This was during uh. his cross of Denise O'Brien, but he didn't have any witnesses or anything to support it, according to press accounts. And remember, the North Carolina trooper had already testified there were no drugs in the car. The trial hit a snag when Langrock went after Vermont State Trooper Timothy Bombardier about the conversation he'd had with Fitzgerald at the New Hampshire rest stop. When Fitzgerald had asked where Ricky was and Bombardier said in Texas, why? In Massachusetts, Fitzgerald had said he didn't want to talk until he had a lawyer. And Langrock said Bombardier asking that question, why? violated Fitzgerald's Miranda oh, rights. Bombardier said that it wasn't an intentional question or interrogation. He just naturally says that when somebody asks him a question. You know, like, why? Like, where's the chocolate cake? Why? I, well, that's an annoying a- answer, though. It went on and on. They argued about it for two hours. The judge, Alden Bryan, didn't totally buy Bombardier's explanation, but also didn't grant the mistrial Langrock had asked for. It was apparently one of many, many, many times Langrock moved for a mistrial during the two-week trial. Well, doing his job, yep. What else are you going to do when the guy's obviously guilty? I know. Albert Oberwetter, who rented a room to Fitzgerald in Texas, said Fitzgerald's sister called the evening of May 11th to say something had happened to Amy. Greg told Oberwetter that he made several calls but couldn't get any information on what had happened. He also told Oberwetter he couldn't get a flight to New England out of San Antonio, so he was going to have to drive up there. Bombardier, the state trooper, though, testified that there were many flights out of San Antonio available that night and other Texas airports that he could have gotten that would have gotten him to New England. And for people who aren't familiar with the geography of New England, Greg flew into Providence, Rhode Island. He flew into Hartford, Connecticut. These are all places that are like 90 minutes from Boston. New England's a small area. Ricky Rodriguez's ghost hovered over the trial, though every time his name came up, the jury had to leave the room while Langrock and the prosecution argued about admissibility. For instance, there were arguments over whether the North Carolina trooper could mention his encounter with Ricky. His whole suspicion of them was that Ricky, Ricky's story and Greg's story about where they were going and what they were doing didn't match up. I don't think we can simply say that Mr. Rodriguez doesn't exist, Prosecutor Lauren Bowerman said at one point. Uh, I would say he does not exist because he's dead, but he did exist. But anyway. <laughs> Langrock also tried to get Rodriguez's death certificate entered as evidence so the jury could see he died by homicide, which Langrock figured would discredit any Ricky evidence that was allowed in. He also wanted to get into evidence that Rodriguez had a history of strangling women, though they said choking, but we know they actually mean strangling, not choking. And so he could have killed Amy. How convenient for them to start giving a shit about Ricky Rodriguez, the fact that he was a domestic batterer now. A little too late for Joanne Martinez. It is not clear when Lisa Morales stopped thinking she was Fitzgerald's fiance, but by the trial in April 1994, A month after she said she would swear he was in Texas when Amy was killed, her mother testified that the two used to date. They were not engaged or in a relationship anymore. Lisa didn't testify from what I can see. And like I said, the alibi promised in March apparently never came up unless she did. And the papers didn't report on it. But I can't imagine if she had testified the papers wouldn't have. I think that there was no point for the prosecution to put her on. And the defense knew there would be no point for them to put her on. An FBI guy testified that Hare 
torn out at the root was found in the sink in Amy's bathroom that matched Greg's in color and the other things that they match hair on. He acknowledged that hair evidence isn't exact, but Amy's sink was sparkling clean, except for this hair that didn't match Amy's hair Mm. or Rodriguez's hair, but was the same color and texture as Greg's hair. And it's interesting it was torn out at the root because nowadays they could get mitochondrial DNA from that. Exactly. But again, like I said last week, nobody's mentioned 19, DNA. Yeah. And, and well, 1993, some places were doing it. I but know, but it was not yeah. Vermont. Yeah. But it's funny, like reporters weren't even aware of it because nobody even said, are you guys going to do any I know. DNA stuff? But anyway, the courtroom was shown graphic photos of Amy's battered body as found by police. Greg, according to press accounts, watched impassively while everyone else was very upset and shaken by them. Greg's brother, Leo Fitzgerald, testified for the state, one of the final witnesses. It's probably no surprise that, aside from his cousin and the other brother at the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot meeting, the family also knew a lot more than they were saying. Uh. Leo also met with Greg in a parking lot the day after Amy's funeral. I don't know if it was the same Dunkin' Donuts or if they met somewhere else, but Greg told Leo... He regretted not getting to Ricky Rodriguez in Texas before the police did because he would have offed him to shut him up if he had been able to. Leo asked Greg if he'd been in Vermont when Amy was killed, and Greg said yes. The door was open and he walked in, but she was already dead. Oh, yeah, sure. It turns out, by the way, the Fitzgerald family only shared cousin Robert Seville story he's the one that greg admitted killing amy to the one who greg tried to pay off to up to vermont and leo's story with the prosecution a month before the trial seville had to be subpoenaed to testify so this stuff all along these people knew greg had told these people this stuff and none of them told the prosecution a word until a month before the trial my guess is they got legal advice from somebody who said look you guys if this comes out that you guys knew this and greg gets convicted you can end up being charged with stuff so nobody elaborated on why they finally came forward but they did amy's mother was the last of 40 prosecution witnesses to testify only a few of those witnesses are mentioned in the article so i have no idea what we may have missed ellen zeltzerman appeared pale and frail and glared at greg fitzgerald from the stand She said she never saw the couple kiss or hug, but they appeared to get along. She said when she called Greg in Texas about Amy's death, it seems like everybody was calling Greg in Texas about Amy's death. He told her he was going to fly to New England, but then they didn't hear from him again until after he arrived after driving up. He showed up at their house in the early hours of May 13th. He stayed less than five minutes and he made no attempt to discuss Amy's death. The day after that, on May 14th in Vermont, Greg started offering theories to the Zeltzermans about who could have killed Amy, including the father of the little girl and the big sister, little sister program. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, because they were probably disadvantaged, possibly minority. Oh, yeah. Or the person she wanted to buy the boat from. Before Langrock could start the defense, the trial took a break. While Langrock looked into reports that Greg's family was in negotiations to sell their story for money. Now, I know that in the UK, it's common practice for newspapers and publications to pay people for their story. In the US, only sleazy tabloids and sleazy TV news magazine shows do it, not legitimate press. So that's just a note for UK listeners. Leo Fitzgerald, the day before, had testified when he testified about his conversation with Greg that a TV producer had offered him $10,000 for their story, but Leo kicked him out in disgust. Now Lane Crock was hearing 
from Greg that Leo had told someone the family could get more money if Greg was convicted. (laughs) According to Greg, his sister, Candy Delaney, had suggested they do it, but donate the money to charity. Leo, though, had said they should keep the money for other aggravation. Mm, Yeah, I would. Greg told Langrock that Candy had told him this story the day before after Leo had testified, saying that she could discredit Leo's Ah. testimony. This is what happened. Always the loyal sister, that Candy, to Greg, not Leo. If you're thinking that she wasn't supposed to be talking to Greg, you are correct. <laughs> if Leo thought he was going to make money off of Greg's conviction, that's one more thing Langrock could try to get a mistrial on since Leo had testified for the prosecution. Langrock told the court that meant Leo Fitzgerald had likely fabricated his testimony. Now, just because it's confusing, so Greg told his lawyer that Candy had told him this whole story about Leo saying they could get more money for the conviction. Okay. And Candy saying they should donate it to charity. You know, yeah, make himself look good. She's so wonderful. And this came out after Leo had testified against Greg. Okay. So on Monday, that was Friday. On Monday, the only defense Langrock apparently put on for the trial was to put Candy Delaney and her husband Wesley on the stand to discredit Leo's testimony. That ended up being a disaster <laughs> since they apparently didn't get their stories straight before taking the stand. Candy testified that her husband, Wesley, is the one who told Greg about Leo, since, of course, she wasn't allowed to talk to Greg. <laughs> but Wesley testified that Candy's the one who told Greg. After that, the lawyers launched into their closing arguments. Cindy McGuire, one of the prosecutors, sorted out the tangled plot of planes, rental cars, and long-distance trips and pointed out to the jury it was intended to be complicated in order to confuse police. Little did she know she was bringing up an eraser killer element. She also pointed out that things were coming to a head for Fitzgerald before Amy died. The Jeep was discovered. She'd figure out soon enough he hadn't been in school, and he had his relationship with Lisa. Amy was expecting him to move to Vermont to buy a house to start a family. She pointed out the evidence of Leo Fitzgerald, and his cousin, Robert Seville, where Greg implicated himself. She told the jury to use their common sense. Mm. Peter Langrock compared the whole thing to an episode of Murder, she wrote, where for 45 minutes, it looks like the murderer was this one obvious person, but then in the last 10 minutes, Jessica Fletcher turns it around and reveals the true murderer, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't the obvious person. Sadly, he said he wasn't Jessica Fletcher, and he didn't have a script writer to do that for him. He also said how Amy died remained a mystery, though the strangulation evidence was pretty clear to everybody else. He said the marks on her back and elbows were also a mystery, but they were deemed by the medical examiner to be obvious drag marks. So I'm not sure why that would be a mystery either. And Greg had also told half the people that he had dragged her from the bedroom to the bathtub, including his cousin, Robert Seville, who had just testified to it a couple days before. Langrock told the jury Despite the fact that they may not like Greg's character, you can't convict on speculation and conjecture. McGuire, in her rebuttal of Langrock's closing, took issue with the murder she wrote example, saying it was a TV fiction show that often used glib humor. This is about the brutal death of Amy Fitzgerald, she said. This is what this is about. This is what we have spent the last 14 days trying to decipher, Amy Fitzgerald's death. The jurors were given five options, first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or not guilty. 
Mike Donahue of the Burlington Free Press wrote that it was one of the quickest verdicts in recent Vermont history, officials had told him. He did not, however, say how long the jury deliberated for. Fortunately, the ever-reliable Diane Derby for the Rutland Herald did. It was less than two hours. Fitzgerald was found guilty of first-degree murder. He smiled as he was let out of the courtroom in handcuffs, again not saying anything. Diane Derby noted he was no longer wearing his wedding ring. Jurors were ordered by Judge Alden Bryant to not talk about the verdict for at least two weeks in case there was a mistrial called. This was because right before the jury came back with the verdict, the judge quizzed an alternate juror who'd been accused of talking about the case. It turns out she said she told a neighbor she hoped it was over soon. And also when she was named an alternate right before deliberation started, she told another juror she was glad she wouldn't have to make the decision. The judge didn't think it was significant, but it's one more thing that would live long past its sell-by date and cause problems. Langrock said he'd appeal on the grounds of evidence and testimony admissibility. He also implied Leo Fitzgerald and Robert Seville, the cousin, had lied. There's a reason they only came forward a month before the trial, he said. Yeah, I think that reason is that they realized they could be in trouble if they didn't. That's me saying. But he also called Cindy McGuire's closing the best he'd heard in more than 20 years. Ooh. The Zeltzerman family hugged and cried after the verdict was read. Sam Zeltzerman, Amy's father, said after the verdict, he was more than satisfied. Thank God we had a sensible jury, he said. Nobody fooled them. Good. He also commended the bravery of the members of the Fitzgerald family who had testified against Greg. He said he, his wife, and sons would hold off on any comment about Fitzgerald until after the sentencing, which was scheduled for mid-July. In early June... Before sentencing took place, Langrock moved for a mistrial, citing the alternate jury thing. Since the neighbor she supposedly talked to didn't want to come forward but wanted to remain anonymous, it didn't work. Sentencing was set for August 1st. At the nearly five-hour sentencing hearing, Amy's family talked about what a loving, caring, hardworking, and accomplished person she was and how much she touched other people's lives. Ellen Zeltzerman, her mother, said she not only lost her daughter, but she'd lost her best friend. Sam Saltzerman called Greg Fitzgerald, quote, a cruel, unscrupulous caricature of a human being, an incorrigible criminal. It's hard for me to think of him as a human being. He later told a reporter that since the trial, he'd lost his taste for criminal defense work and was no longer doing it. Can't blame him. No, can't. Family members, too, said the relationship between Amy and her husband was doomed from the start. Amy, 19 when she met Greg, had low self-esteem, her brother David said. Fitzgerald was seven years her senior, quote, he latched on to her. From the time they met, he never worked. He had her support him. Fitzgerald didn't speak at the hearing, but Fritz Langrock, representing him, told the judge, my client maintains his innocence. Greg Fitzgerald was sentenced to life without parole. One of several men who'd gotten that sentence in Vermont in the past three years, The newspapers made sure that was clear, and there's a reason I'm mentioning that. Life without parole in Vermont at the time meant an automatic Vermont Supreme Court appeal. The next year, 1995, Fitzgerald asked the court to overturn his conviction. True to form for his kind of killer, he fired his lawyer, Robert Paolini, just hours before the appeal was filed and was to be heard in court. But since neither Paolini nor the court was notified, he had to represent Fitzgerald anyway. The appeal was based on the conversation between Fitzgerald and the Vermont state trooper who asked why, when Greg asked where Ricky was, the alternate juror thing, and the fact the prosecution never proved Amy's time of death. 
In July 1996, the Vermont Supreme Court denied the appeal. I won't go into all their reasoning. I think it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. In 1998, in another true-to-form move, Fitzgerald petitioned the court to let him have access to Amy's property, which he said could provide evidence of his innocence, including computers and other items that were still being held by the state police. I guess I had to hold the evidence till appeals went through. Richard Kozlowski, the attorney who managed Amy's estate, said that the family didn't want Greg to have anything that was Amy's. Quote, it's not about the money, it's the principle, he said. Uh Kozlowski said that Greg was free to have any men's clothing and anything else that belonged to him, but apparently Greg didn't want that stuff. The request was denied. But that wasn't the last anyone heard from Greg Fitzgerald. No, not even close. Since he was convicted... Fitzgerald has filed more than 30 claims, throwing in everything he could, ineffective assistance of counsel, prosecutorial misconduct, sentencing errors, you name it. On January 12th of this year, Vermont's legal system finally threw in the towel. The now 64-year-old Fitzgerald struck a deal with Vermont prosecutors that reduced his sentence to 35 years to life, which means he can be out in four to seven months with time off for good behavior. Ah. In turn... He has to withdraw all his pending appeals. Chittenden County State Attorney Sarah George told the Boston Globe in January that in the face of concerning issues that arose in the most recent round of appeals, prosecutors reached a just resolution, she Uh. called it. The issues that are concerning is that Fitzgerald claims Langrock apparently didn't know or tell Fitzgerald that he was facing life without parole and also didn't properly convey to him a plea deal that would have given him 30 years in prison. Langrock told the Boston Globe that Fitzgerald's claims are absurd. Langrock, who's 83, said his memory of things that happened almost 30 years ago isn't great, but it's unlikely that he didn't tell Fitzgerald the possible sentence or that he improperly conveyed the plea deal offer. And I have to agree, he was the top criminal defense attorney in Vermont at the time, and he threw everything he had into Fitzgerald's defense. He doesn't make mistakes like that, or he wouldn't have gotten where he was. And also, the newspapers at the time made a big deal about all the life without parole sentences that were being handed down. So it's hard to believe Greg and his defense weren't concerned about him getting one if it was first-degree murder. Also, the controlling manipulator he is, I can't see him taking a plea deal. No, of course he he wouldn't. He was sure he was going to get up. He was smarter than everybody else and wanted the trial. Sarah George, the Vermont prosecutor, said that a representative from Amy Fitzgerald's family, her parents had died a couple of years ago, but her two brothers are still around, was kept in the loop throughout the process. Though Amy's brother, Alan Zeltzerman, told the Boston Globe they weren't as much in the loop as they could have been because they were shocked by the announcement. He told the Globe that Fitzgerald is a master manipulator who never gave up, hammered the system with appeals, and maneuvered his way out of prison. Quote, I'm just completely tired and devastated and extremely disappointed in the state's attorney's office with the way this matter was handled. He spent his life lying and people believing him, unfortunately. Now he's gotten away with essentially first-degree murder and will be released, he said. Fitzgerald's current lawyer, Mark Ferlin, he told the Boston Globe that Fitzgerald, who now admits to responsibility and that he murdered Amy, apologized with genuine remorse, accepted responsibility, and professed to be a changed person at his January 12th hearing in Vermont Superior Court. Quote, he's pretty old and he's not in great health, Ferlin said. And I'm like, pretty old. He's only four fucking years older than I am. <laughs> He's pretty old. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah. It's all 64. Yeah. 
Furlan also said, despite what the family feels, I don't think anyone really believes that he's a threat anymore to anyone. Um, yeah, I know you're thinking of Albert Flick. Yeah, I sure I am. Yep. Sarah George, the Vermont prosecutor, said, I know they are not going to release someone into our community who has been convicted of first degree homicide unless they absolutely believe they're low risk. I know that isn't comforting to the family, but as a prosecutor, I have to believe that the Department of Corrections is going to make sure that he is a safe person in our community Mm. before they put him into our community. Let's hope that's true. Throughout these two episodes, I've talked about eraser killers. Marilee Strong's book, Erased, Missing Women, Murdered Wives, was published in 2008, written after she covered the first Scott Peterson trial. She's a journalist. As I said last week, anyone who harbors any doubt about Scott Peterson's guilt should read it. But Mm -hmm. she found there are two kinds of eraser killers. Those whose wives disappear, the body often never found, and the ones who stage a scene to look like something else happened. Those guys all have some aspects in common, including the dark triad, which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. I believe if the book were written now, she'd also talk a lot about coercive control too, but that wasn't something a lot of people were discussing back then. In any case, it's amazing if you read her book, how many of these guys were lying about going to college, med school, whatever, and about to be found out. It's like they all. I know. Well, listen, or had built some other little house of cards secret from their wife that was about to collapse. Here's something many of them have in common. And as I said, she didn't write about Fitzgerald, but see how many of these apply to Greg Fitzgerald. They're compulsive liars, many able to modulate their lies if they're in a situation where they know they'll get caught. Strong points out the complex pattern of lying by killers like Scott Peterson and Mark Hacking. He's another one who lied about being in college, Mark Hacking. Quote, especially to their wives, lies told, maintained, and elaborated over long periods of time in order to cover the fact that they were leading secret lives, unquote. They see their wives as commodities, and when they're no longer of any use to them, the wife has no right to go on living. Quote, in his mind, he is not murdering a human being. He is simply rearranging the world to better suit his needs to remove a major annoyance or let him make a fresh start of things, unquote. They often replace her with something else, usually someone who's useful to them in some way. And many of the guys she wrote about also got caught because they ended up killing the second wife or third wife, too. Mm -hmm. They're also able to plan the murder meticulously and have the self-control to pull it off. And she makes the distinction between these guys and guys who may be wife beaters or whatever, but go too far and and kill the wife. These guys are planning a meticulous plan, um, usually an overly complicated meticulous plan. Quote, the expertise at line and manipulation that is needed to successfully lead a double life is indicative of a high degree of Machiavellian thinking and behavior, she wrote. The murders are usually, or at least planned to be, a soft kill, smothering, suffocation, strangling, so as to leave behind as little evidence as possible at the crime scene. Many of the men on the surface seem normal and people aren't suspicious, including Mm. their wives. Quote, because they are experts at manipulating and deceiving those around them, because they hold nearly everything that is true about them in complete secrecy, the women in their lives often have no idea they are in mortal danger until it is too late. Many go to extraordinary lengths, not just to manipulate a crime scene or make a woman disappear, but also to manipulate the police, the courts, and justice itself, strong rights. 
quote, this manipulation, I believe, is something that is also key to the nature of the eraser killer becomes almost an end in itself, an enjoyable battle of wits in which he is sure he will always come out on top. Hmm. If they leave behind evidence at all, it's organized evidence, as police call it, designed to stage a scenario. Remember how Major Ruggiero back last episode said there was no sign of a struggle, Mm -hmm. meaning the house was neat and clean? The only mess was litter Greg had spread on the floor to stage the slip and fall scenario and his hair in a sparkling clean bathroom sink. They also like to confuse police with their staging, something the prosecution pointed out about Mm -hmm. Greg's plan. They don't exhibit mourning or other signs of emotional loss, but act strangely inappropriate. Mm. Once he makes up his mind to do it, to kill his wife, it's all consuming and he won't be stopped. Mm. They're often intelligent, but they overestimate how smart they are. They're often familiar with the law and how police work. Remember how Fitzgerald said he had friends in the police department? While some may stage a suicide attempt, few actually go through with a serious one because they feel no guilt for what they've done. They are using the suicide attempt to manipulate a situation. They rarely show any emotion at trial, even when the most graphic evidence of what they did is displayed. The times they do, it's usually because something made them feel sorry for themselves or their predicament. As in all these cases, with Fitzgerald, reporters and everyone else are like little baby birds begging, 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 begging for a motive. While prosecutors don't have to prove one, that's what everyone from the press to jurors, everyone wants to know. In Fitzgerald's case, prosecutors hammered at the trial. It was greed and lust, the money and the girlfriend. But it's actually more complicated than that with eraser killers. And 14 years after Strong's book came out, people still aren't any closer to understanding that. Strong, who, as I said, didn't write about Fitzgerald, but does talk about 50 other cases, writes that the money, the other woman, all that stuff are MacGuffins, red herrings. They obscure rather than reveal the darker machinations of the plot. She said the real motivation and why people have so much trouble understanding it is driven by the dark triad I mentioned earlier, psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. I won't go through the whole psychopath checklist. I know people use that word often, but there is an actual psychological checklist. But even Mm -hmm. though we don't know everything there is to know about Greg Fitzgerald's life, he ticks off many of the boxes, including glibness, compulsive lying, a grandiose sense of self-worth, conning and manipulation of others, lack of remorse or guilt. He's a parasite, callousness, lack of empathy, inability to accept responsibility. The list goes on. Strong points out, though, that it's not a pure psychopathy, but it's one that's influenced by the narcissism, the overblown sense of self and entitlement, even though they don't have the achievement to back it up. But narcissists also have insecurity that makes them need constant validation. They often see themselves as the victim, and they use emotionally loaded manipulation to keep women coming back to them, and uh-huh. they know which, what type of woman to pick that that's going to work on. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with these women. There was nothing wrong with Amy. There was nothing wrong with Susan Powell or Lacey Peterson. They were positive, high-achieving, or Shannon Watts. Watts. I think they were used to fixing stuff. And, and I also feel like the women... Um, don't realize what a psycho the guy is obviously because they really do fall in love and he the guys just kind of go along and mimic right they they think they're supposed to do right scott peterson if you read that book eraser killers scott peterson was great with that with all the women he was cheating with he was a different person and it behaved differently but anyway 
Machiavellianism shows itself as disregard for others. They're just pawns to use to get what you want. These men are schemers who use more strategy than a straight out psychopath does. Eraser killers aren't driven by bloodlust or sadism or bout of uncontrolled rage. They're not legally insane. They kill for sheer convenience. The hallmark of all three aspects of the dark triad is lack of empathy. Quote, they know what they're doing is wrong, but they do it anyway because they believe the rules don't apply to them. Strong rights. Many of these guys finally act and commit the murder when their house of cards is falling down. So try explaining that as motive to a jury, even if you do get it as a prosecutor. The cops sure don't get it. How often do you hear, we don't know what the motive is, he's just evil. The sad thing is, as long as people keep falling back on that idiotic evil thing and aren't looking seriously at these guys, women who are living extraordinary lives will continue to be killed by men. Uh Strong also points out the fallacy that circumstantial evidence isn't real evidence. And that's also a problem in most of these cases because of all the planning. Circumstantial evidence has been accepted in court for centuries. As I said earlier, when there's a smoking gun, a defendant usually takes a plea deal and doesn't go to trial. Good prosecutors, and Cindy McGuire was one who nailed it, point out that the individual pieces may not seem like much, but put it all together and they form a case. Use your common sense. And that's accepted in law. Amy's family got that in 1994 when he was sentenced, just as they get it now. Even if they weren't familiar with a racer killer, they got what made Greg tick. Sam Zeltzerman, in asking for life without parole, told the judge, it was a planned, deliberate execution, Your Honor, by a completely unscrupulous, vicious, unfeeling, Mm -hmm. horrible caricature of a human being. David Zeltzerman, at Fitzgerald sentencing, said Amy, with all her achievements, no longer had the low self-esteem that he had talked about earlier. She was coming into her own, and Fitzgerald couldn't stand it, and he had to do something about it by killing her. At the time of his sentencing, Fitzgerald wasn't admitting to his guilt, of course. He only admitted it in January this year to get out of jail. In 1994, his lawyer, Fritz Langrock, told the judge that there was no need for rehabilitation, no need for remorse, since Fitzgerald didn't do anything wrong. Uh. But at the time, Judge Alden Bryan saw it differently. Quote, the court cannot overlook the fact that this was a most senseless killing done by an intelligent but thoroughly evil person with weeks, if not months of planning. A pre-sentencing investigation of the crime um, had recommended the life without parole. Judge Bryan agreed, quote, this is nothing but a brutal killing of a loving and accomplished spouse, one who had so much to give the world. There is nothing in the evidence and nothing in the pre-sentence investigation to indicate the slightest possibility of rehabilitation. So that is part two of the Amy Fitzgerald. Thank you. It's very annoying that he that he's gonna I first heard of this when I read the story in January about how he was getting out of jail. And I thought just reading that story, and it was, oh, he led this double life, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't have obviously all the details we've talked about the past two episodes. But just looking at it, I said, this guy is an eraser killer. Yeah. And he has all the, in the course of doing the research for this, I also reread the Merrily Strong book. It's hard to put down. But I give Amy's brothers, Alan and David, credit for speaking so forcefully about what he's really like. But it is, confounding to me that all this attention to motive but people want this very clear cut oh he was going to get a hundred thousand dollars oh he had a girlfriend blah 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 
they're not motives they're just right. like they, she said they're like that's stuff he wants right. but they're they're symptoms that's not why not he's the killing cause. her yeah right. He, right of course he, he wants, wants money shit. he doesn't want to work he's and he a wants a nice young new girlfriend but well, it, lisa did stuff he wanted also he gathered around him people who would do his bidding yeah there's so much more i'm sure to the story that we'll never know i had to rely on newspaper accounts and i give especially diane derby i don't know if she's still around or not but i give her all the credit in the world for actually looking into things i wish merrily strong would write uh, an update to eraser killers including like coercive there's just so many people. i know there is and they all all those things it's like, so like the whole thing about lying about going to school i, I can't know, even imagine there's so many things that they have in common with each other it's not funny i mean right. we can kind of be flipping about it because it's so common that they all seem to lie about the same shit right and it's so it's and almost I a cliche people have to learn to recognize and the, the attention their- is always on not any red flags these guys are throwing up but kind of what the woman well why didn't she know it scott peterson is still fooling people and Jeff, the thing is that, like you were saying they know what kind of women to pick and the women that it doesn't work on just like don't have anything to do with them they either break up with right. them or they leave it's the women they can keep and right. then they get tired of i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the women it works on but they look for women who right. are caring amy was gonna find out there were so many things coming to a head for him and he wasn't gonna be able but he was planning her murder like before the jeep was found it's clearly you know yeah he huh. didn't even go to classes so that was all a ruse what did he think and that's another thing because there was so much i kind of put in but they don't necessarily have an end game like no. they don't think the whole thing about not going to school like mark hacking was the same way she's not gonna not find out i know you can drive yourself nuts trying to understand these guys because most people approach it like a normal person well why would he do that well he doesn't think like you I think that they're gonna figure it out or something's gonna happen right but and then they do figure it out thing. oh i'll just kill her and, and i know like and i know some, greg yeah. fitzgerald has spent 27 years in prison and i'm not necessarily in favor of long prison sentence our, our sentencing system is so screwed up you know some poor woman will get you know life for hiding her boyfriend's cocaine or something but then a guy will kill a woman like eldred stafford did you know with beverly smith and get less than two years but i think that there are certain types of guys that a long sentence for something like that i think is appropriate you know hopefully he'll go to texas or something and leave he might not kill somebody again but he's definitely gonna be using and ruining people's lives yeah it's it's how he rolls but anyway so you have a recommendation yes i do (laughs) people were talking about this on i saw a couple mentions of it um, on Facebook and Twitter. So I, I decided to watch The Tinder Swindler. Mm. Well, let's see. That. There's a reason I didn't want to watch it. So let's see if you... Okay. So it's not bad. I'll go through the negative Nellies, but I don't want to give a lot of... I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I, I saw Laura Richards did one of her things about it too, but I haven't listened to it. Well, let me go through negative Nellies yeah, and then know. I'll talk about it. Yeah. Bad reenactments, I'm taking half a point off. There aren't really long involved reenactments, but they are unnecessary. So I don't think they need it. They're just the same type that they tend to do now where it's like someone's talking. They kind of have these 
little vignettes of yeah people without faces doing so and mm. it's like this isn't necessary show us scenery of the city this all takes place in europe show us scenery of the city where it took place or yeah. something you don't need to have this fake thing it's stupid the half point off narrative cliches no there is no narrator which is good it's less than two hours so that's another good thing about it it's basically talking to three women that have been involved with this guy who is a he's a swindler all three of them met him on tinder which I've never been on and never will go on. No. Well, I've been tempted to go on it just to see mm, things like I went on. Start. No, I went on that.com once because Eric's cousin had a, I knew he had a thing on there and I wanted to see his thing and see how honest he, which he was see his honest. Thing, huh? <laughs> I wanted to see his profile, seeing somebody I know, like how honest right. are they? And his was actually pretty honest and he had a good picture of himself that looked like him. So this was like years ago. This was because I remembered I was at work. I saw a bunch of people that, because it was all men in the area, like in the whatever 50 mile radius. And I saw many that I knew that I'd worked with. And I felt like saying to yeah. them, like contacting them and saying, your picture is creepy. You're profile is weird you're not going to get a date but mm. i didn't do that but no. anyways i've never been on tinder but the whole it's a, so online it's, thing it is, seems exhausting i don't want to yeah. go on a date bad enough to do that no, neither do i i'll give me i'd people. rather sit home and read a book Besides, i'd rather just meet someone at per i meet people right. in person if i wanted to right anyway, anyway racial gender stereotypes now everyone in it is white and european the guy is israeli lack of good visuals i'm taking off half a point again for the reason I said I would have liked to see since this was this guy was supposedly a jet setter you know bullshit Mm. um he had this jet setting lifestyle supposedly he actually did because he got money from people he swindled but I would have liked to see more more scenery and eye candy and stuff like that if they're gonna have yeah that lately I feel like reenactments are almost a lazy substitution for visuals especially like we've said before it's the digital age right this is people who are on social media you can have a hell of a lot more pictures and shit i'm sorry but i will they do use like um text one of the women who i'll talk about later she always took videos of stuff to show her friends and stuff and she saved everything she archived everything so there are a lot of like text Mm. exchanges and videos he sent her and stuff like that which actually helped her later on but missing pieces I don't think so he had other victims I'm sure but they focused on three which I don't have any problem with and I'll talk about that at the end inaccuracy anachronisms no storytelling I actually didn't mind the storytelling at first it seemed like I couldn't figure out exactly where it was going but it came together pretty well especially Mm. by the end they first talked to one woman that had a relationship with him and thought she was his girlfriend blah 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 and then there's the next woman, they kind of talk to her a little bit, but they kind of tease her and then they don't talk to her more until later. And she turns out to not be a romantic partner with him, but she was a good friend. They would just mm-hmm. remain friends mm-hmm. because they didn't hit it off physically or whatever. I don't know. Then there was a third woman near the end who was also in a relationship. Can I ask a question about the storytelling? Because this is why 
I've been avoiding watching it. The description makes it sound like it's one of those, which I've seen a couple doc- documentaries like, and they end up boring me, where the women like team up to get the guy. Um, no, no, they oh, okay. didn't. Okay. No. Freshness. I'm not taking any points off because I hadn't really heard much about him or probably should have repetition. I'm taking half a point off because again, they show the same pictures over and over again of him. And I'm like, sorry, but I know that all these women had pictures of themselves with him and there are plenty of pictures of him out there. So please show me different than the same fucking picture over and over beating the drum. No. And they, they kind of could have beat it more. They maybe slightly did, but I think you'd probably like it because it does bring in the hero kind of as the newspaper in, Ah. uh, in Oslo. The first woman's from Norway she worked in London too. And she went back and forth, I guess. And she met the guy on Tinder. He swept her off her, you know, she, I think she was just hook up with him, but then blah, blah, blah. And he basically conned her. And none of these women were dumbasses. They all were seemed pretty smart, but you can really see how she got fooled because he had a private jet. I mean, he took her on these trips and stuff right. because he was financing it through other people he told all these three women the same story but it was he had used different storylines before but in this storyline he was the son of this diamond merchant family for some reason that he had these enemies that were after him and so he needed money because his his funds got frozen suddenly and oh yeah he just needed temporary loan and blah 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 and all these women are very likable and confident women who are very honest about their story, which I give them credit for, because I know that they got a lot of shit online. Mm. The woman from Norway, she talked to the newspaper because she wanted her story to be publicized because of what he put her through. And she knew that he had other victims and she wanted everyone to know who he was. The newspaper was very helpful. He had been in prison for fraud before and only got a few months or something and then Mm. he was out and doing it again yeah because people like him that's a way of life he's also a sociopath he was a little bit different than that puppet master guy because he didn't keep it up but i'm amazed at the gall of someone like him when all three of the women found him out one of them worked with the police they couldn't for some reason couldn't find him even though he was Mm. texting there were ways to find him but they just couldn't all these women are in huge debt now and can't get out of it and so i gave it it was eight and a half i think eight and a half it's nice and compact i didn't see that there was a lot of filler it was pretty straightforward it was satisfying. I thought the three women were good interviewees. They pretty much told their own story. There wasn't a lot of overlap. There wasn't somebody telling someone else's story. There was the reporter from the paper telling her story too. And then there was another guy that I think he was the photographer or something. You know, it was a good thing to watch for a couple hours. It wasn't like I, yeah, I that, thought it was the greatest well, thing. Sounds- but I think you'd enjoy it. I think if he had different victims... Someone would have given more of a shit. And these women, when they did go public with their stories, especially the Norwegian one, because her face was all over the, you know, it was the biggest paper in Norway or whatever. Mm. And of course, the online comments, people like, you're a gold digger. They're mm-hmm. calling gold diggers and stuff because you only went out with him because he was rich, which isn't true. So she are pro- people supposed to only go out with poor guys? I know. And she said, how am I a gold digger? I'm like the opposite of a gold digger. I was giving him my money. 
I found all of them, especially their Norwegian one, even though I didn't agree with her philosophy on life about wanting to find love and partner up. Ugh. I still thought that she was honest and she seemed funny and smart. Oh, but that it, sounds good. Yeah. And the guy was he's not somebody that I would find attractive at all. Not that he was unattractive, but I was just like, oh, would yeah. never date someone like that. But you know, I can see why they'd probably be attracted. Mm-hmm. To okay. I'm so, going to do the next story. Yeah, I can't wait. I- I'll talk to you about it after you turn off the recording. Okay. Well, then we should say goodbye. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. Hopefully most people will be watching the stupid bowl. I know. I think they are. Yeah. I know in this house they are. And- I think that many times we've recorded during the stupid bowl. I know. I was thinking, I know last year we did. I'm and I sure. think we did back when we were doing it in Yarmouth because we knew nobody would be at the Oh, yeah. The place, you know? It seems so long ago. I know. It, it does. A different lifetime. What was that? I said, mm, I was no. just going. Oh, it sounded like just- something got knocked over. No. Hmm. Okay.